Welcome to 5 at 8. I'm Mark Overman, and I'm here with Linda Carlisle on Sunday, August 20th, 2023. Here's the day's top news. In this episode, we will talk about Russia's Luna 25 spacecraft encountering an abnormal situation during its preparation for landing on the moon's South Pole. We'll also discuss George Soros's Open Society Foundations reducing its activities across the European Union, a Russian missile strike in Ukraine, Chinese warplanes flying over Taiwan's air defense zone, and Zimbabweans heading to the polls to choose their next president. Story number one. Russia's Luna 25 spacecraft, which is set to land on the south pole of the moon on Monday, has encountered an abnormal situation during its preparation for landing, as reported by Russia's national space agency Roscosmos, according to Al Jazeera. The spacecraft, the first Russian vehicle to enter the moon's orbit since 1976, aims to explore an area that scientists believe may contain frozen water and valuable elements. The presence of water on the moon could have significant implications for future space exploration and resource mining. Roscosmos has received initial mission results and is currently analyzing the data. When you look at this Luna 25 mission, it really hammers home just how far we've come in terms of space exploration. I mean, we're not just talking about landing on the moon anymore, but potentially mining it for resources. It's like the Wild West out there, but instead of gold, we're after water and precious elements. The parallels with historical quests for resources are notable. This lunar exploration could be the modern equivalent of the gold rush or the oil boom. The stakes are high and the competition is fierce. However, the challenges are also enormous. The abnormal situation Luna 25 encountered is a stark reminder of the unpredictable nature of space missions. Space is the final frontier, and it's not without its challenges. But just like the prospectors of old, we learn from our setbacks and keep pushing forward. And it's not just about competition. There's a great deal of shared interest among nations. NASA's been eyeing the moon's South Pole for a while, too. It's a global effort. The international interest in space exploration and the potential mining of celestial bodies paints a picture of a shared vision for the future. However, it also raises important ethical and environmental questions. Just as we have seen the impact of resource extraction on Earth, we must consider the potential consequences for the moon and other celestial bodies. Couldn't agree more, Linda. It's a new frontier, but we need to carry forward the lessons we've learned here on Earth. Exploration and innovation should go hand in hand with responsibility and sustainability. We have a duty to protect and preserve, not just for us, but for future generations. Well put, Mark. As we venture further into space, we must remember our shared responsibility. We are not just explorers and innovators, but stewards of these celestial bodies. The journey ahead is certainly exciting, but it must be undertaken with care and respect for the environments we encounter. Story number two. George Soros's Open Society Foundations, or OSF, has announced that it will reduce its activities across the European Union, EU, from 2024, as reported by The Guardian. The move has raised concerns among human rights activists and independent media who fear that the billionaire philanthropist's legacy in promoting democracy and human rights in the region could be undermined. The OSF's cuts will be most severe in Europe, with staff layoffs and office closures. Many NGOs, think tanks, and research groups in Europe rely on the OSF's support for issues such as media freedom and migrants' rights. The foundation spent $1.5 billion on philanthropic causes in 2021 
The OSF's new strategic direction aims to focus on grants that have a specific impact, and it will continue to support European Roma communities. However, the reduction in staff and resources has left some grantees and employees uncertain about the Foundation's future strategy. Might seem like a shocker to some, Linda. This news about Soros's Open Society Foundations pulling back from Europe, given the impact they've had on human rights and democracy. And it's not just a small-scale retreat. It sounds like they're really cutting down, particularly in Europe. It's a significant pivot. The role that organizations like the Open Society Foundations play in civil society is often unappreciated until they're not there. Their support for NGOs, think tanks, and independent media has been a lifeline for many, especially in countries where government support for these institutions is lacking or non-existent. You hit the nail on the head there. These organizations become the lights for human rights in places where they are under threat. But, you know, it's their money and they can choose where to channel it. The shift might be due to a change in strategic direction, or maybe they've identified other areas where they believe their funds can make a bigger impact. That's a valid point, Mark. Philanthropic organizations do have the freedom to redirect their funding. However, it's equally important to consider the potential fallout of such a major shift. It's not just about the direct beneficiaries, but also the ripple effects that these organizations create in the larger societal fabric. True, Linda. It's like pulling out a major thread from a tapestry. The whole thing could unravel, and it leaves a big question mark on what comes next for these organizations that heavily relied on the support from the Open Society Foundations. It's a complex issue, and it's also reflective of the larger debate about the role of private wealth in public policy and civil society. These are interesting times, and it'll be fascinating to see how this all unfolds. Story number three. A Russian missile strike on a central square in Chernihiv, Ukraine, killed seven people and injured 144, as reported by The Guardian. The attack was condemned as heinous by the UN's humanitarian coordinator for Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky promised a notable response to the terrorist attack. The injured included 15 children and 15 police officers. The strike occurred during a religious holiday. Ukraine is in discussions with Sweden to receive Gripen jets to strengthen its air defenses. The Ukrainian Air Force shot down 15 Russian drones targeting various regions. Russian President Vladimir Putin visited military officials near the Ukrainian border. So... This missile strike in Chernihiv, Ukraine, it's absolutely horrific. No doubt about it. Seven innocent people lost their lives, including a six-year-old child and 144 others injured. A blatant disregard for civilian life. I mean, when war spills into the public squares, it's a whole new level of atrocity. This attack is indeed a heinous act. But while we condemn this, it's also important to remember that in war, there are no clear lines. I mean, it's not always black and white. It's a sad reality, but civilian infrastructure has often been a target in conflicts, intentional or unintentional. Right, Linda, but that doesn't make it acceptable. The international laws of war are pretty clear on this. Civilian population and infrastructure should be protected. And yet, here we are, talking about a missile strike on a central square. It's not just about the immediate casualties, but the long-term psychological effects on the survivors and the entire community. It's just... It's just not right. I hear you, Mark. And I agree, it's not right. But we also have to remember the context. Ukraine is in the middle of a war. A war that doesn't seem to have an end in sight. The reality of war, unfortunately, is that it's messy and cruel. 
And while we should strive for the protection of civilians, it's not always possible. I mean, just look at the history of warfare. Well, Linda, just because it's been happening doesn't mean we should accept it as the norm. The international community needs to step up and hold these actors accountable. The UN, for instance, they've condemned the attack. But what concrete actions are they taking to prevent further strikes? That's what I want to know. And that's a valid question, Mark. The role of international bodies in these situations is indeed crucial. But let's also remember that these organizations are often limited by the political will of their member states. It's a complex issue, and there's no easy solution. But yes, discussion and awareness are the first steps toward change. Story number four. Over 40 Chinese warplanes flew over Taiwan's air defense zone, with 26 of them crossing the median line of the Taiwan Strait, as reported by the BBC. Taiwan's defense ministry called the military drills irrational and provocative, and accused China of trying to influence Taiwan's upcoming election. China stated that the drills were meant to test its forces' ability to fight in combat conditions and serve as a warning to those supporting Taiwan independence. This comes after China expressed anger over Taiwan's Vice President William Lai visiting the United States. Despite China's claim to sovereignty over Taiwan, the island governs itself and described China's military exercise as irrational and provocative behavior. Taiwan stated that it would respond with appropriate forces and criticized China's militaristic mentality and military expansion. Taiwan's foreign minister accused China of attempting to shape Taiwan's upcoming national election. Residents in Taiwan's capital, Taipei, expressed little concern over China's activities, believing that a real war is unlikely to happen. What a display of power by China, huh? Sending 42 warplanes over Taiwan's air defense zone, it's like they're flexing their military muscle right at Taiwan's face. It's not exactly the most subtle way to show their disapproval of Taiwan's vice president's recent stopover in the U.S., is it? Indeed. It is a rather aggressive move. While the Chinese military spokesperson calls it a stern warning, it's quite clear that it's an intimidation tactic. It's a way to exert pressure on Taiwan, especially in light of the upcoming elections. Right, Linda. And China's use of military drills around this time seems like a strategic ploy to influence Taiwan's elections. I mean, it's not the first time we're seeing this. Remember when Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year? Same reaction from China. Yes, Mark. These power displays are often used as political tools, not just in this case, but historically as well. But they can escalate tensions and even lead to conflicts. That's why it's important for international community to pay close attention and respond appropriately. And speaking of international community, I think the U.S. plays a key role here. It's clear that China's not too happy about Taiwan's growing closeness with the U.S. And the U.S. has a lot at stake, too, considering the strategic position of Taiwan. That's true, Mark. And it's interesting to see how the people of Taiwan are reacting to this. Some residents in Taipei don't seem overly concerned, viewing it more as a show by China. They trust that the U.S. will intervene if things go south. However, it's crucial to remember that these drills have real implications for regional security. It's not just about the show of force, but what that force could potentially do. I mean, it's all well and good to say it won't lead to a real attack, but history tells us that tensions like these can quickly escalate if not handled carefully. Agreed, Mark. It's a delicate situation that needs careful handling and diplomatic efforts. The last thing anyone wants is an escalation to a full-blown conflict. 
Story number five. Zimbabweans are set to head to the polls on August 23rd to choose their next president, as reported by Al Jazeera. The race is largely seen as a rematch between opposition leader Nelson Chamisa and incumbent President Emerson Mnangagwa. The election comes amid significant economic challenges, high unemployment rates, and corruption scandals. In addition to the presidential election, citizens will also vote for local council representatives and members of parliament. The winning presidential candidate must receive more than 50% of the vote, otherwise a runoff election will be held. Results are expected to be announced within five days of the close of polling. I gotta tell you, Linda, these upcoming elections in Zimbabwe, they're shaping up to be a real nail-biter, don't you think? I mean, with Nelson Chamisa and Emerson Mangagwa head-to-head again, it feels like we're watching a political rematch. Yes, the political landscape in Zimbabwe is quite dynamic. The incumbent, Minangagwa, represents the Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front, a party that's been in power since the country's independence. Chamisa, on the other hand, is leading a relatively new party, the Citizens' Coalition for Change. Right, right. And it's not just them. There are nine other candidates, too. And what about this Douglas Monzora fellow who pulled out of the race calling it a farce? That's gotta raise some eyebrows, huh? Yes, it does indeed raise concerns about the election's credibility. However, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission insists that the elections will proceed as planned. They have registered 6.5 million voters across the nation, so it's clear that the people of Zimbabwe are ready to exercise their democratic rights. Yeah, that's a good point. But man, amid all this, the economy is tanking, inflation is skyrocketing, and corruption seems rampant. It's a tough environment for any leader to navigate, wouldn't you say? The economic situation is precarious and corruption has been a long-standing issue in Zimbabwe. The voters will undoubtedly be looking for a leader who can address these pressing issues effectively. Yeah, for sure. And from what I understand, it's not just the presidency up for grabs, right? The elections are also for local council and parliamentary seats. Yes, that's correct, Mark. In fact, the 2013 Constitution dictates that 60 seats in the National Assembly are reserved for women and are allocated proportionally across 10 constituencies. This shows some progress towards a more inclusive political structure. That's a good thing, more representation, more voices. But tell me, Linda, how does the actual voting process work? Well, Mark, on Election Day, registered voters head to their designated polling stations, where they present their identification. They then cast their votes in secret, marking their preferred candidate on a ballot paper. This is then placed in a secure ballot box. After voting, a voter dips his or her finger in indelible ink. The ballot boxes are later transported to designated counting centers, where the votes are tallied. The candidate with the highest number of valid votes wins. And if no candidate gets more than 50% of the vote, there's a runoff, right? Yes, Mark. A runoff election is held between the two candidates with the highest number of votes, typically within 28. 42 days after the initial election. Well, Linda, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Democracy in action, as they say, right? Despite the challenges Zimbabwe faces, it's encouraging to see the democratic process at work. It's a testament to the resilience and determination of the Zimbabwean people. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.